Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to get into your word. It's exciting. Your word is truth. Your truth sets captives free. Father, we're going to get into some details tonight, but we're going to get into some truths uh, that are encouraging and impactful as well. And with all of this, Lord God, may your spirit impact us and impart truth. And Father, I pray that we would love truth. We would love what truth does to us. We would love what truth does to others. And I thank you, Father, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so tonight, God, we want to discover truth. We want to be immersed in truth. And so, Father, I ask as we look into First Thessalonians, would you impart that truth to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as I said, we've wrapped up the book of Acts, and we're now moving into First Thessalonians. Next week will be Second Thessalonians, the week after that, Galatians. Now, I am doing this in what I personally consider the order in which they were written chronologically. So, um, though Acts obviously was not written first, it was written probably around 62 or so AD, uh, or at least finished. But, and you can tell by the way it ends and several other things I shared with you. But 1 Thessalonians, I believe, is the first one that Paul wrote. And what I'm going to do right now is I, I want to again emphasize to you that Luke does not record everything that is that, that happened. And we're going to see that, and maybe you already noticed it uh, as you were reading through 1 Thessalonians. But if you were to turn to Acts 17, so keep your finger right there in 1 Thessalonians, but turn to Acts 17. I want us to see a few things. Acts 17 is actually Paul's, Paul's, Timothy's, and Silas, and perhaps others that Luke just chooses not to record, such as in his third missionary journey, we find out in 2 Corinthians that Titus was with him, but we don't read about that. So there's possibly others in Paul's entourage here, and Luke just doesn't record them. But in Acts 17, we have his, his um, evangelistic efforts in Thessalonica, and it says right there in verse 17. Let me, uh, no, 14. Wow. Acts 17, 14. Here we go. The brothers immediately sent Paul. This is, they, they went to Thessalonica, I should say this. They were there, it says, for three Sabbaths. And then they, they moved out from Thessalonica to Berea because of persecution. Then the Thessalonian Jews heard they were in Berea. And so they went to Berea and it forced them to leave Berea. And we pick up here in verse 14, the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast while Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So we reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So we find him in... Athens at this point, and we discover that Timothy and Silas were left where? Were left in what city? Berea. Berea. Okay. So they're left in they're left in Berea. And then over here, skip over to Acts 18. 
verse 5, it says, When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. This is Paul in Corinth. Now, if you were to look at Paul's second missionary journey, he goes from Thessalonica to Berea to Athens and then to Corinth. Okay? And so it, it would seem that Paul, excuse me, yeah, Paul left Timothy and Silas in Berea and then he went to Athens, went to Corinth, and then they joined him in Corinth. However, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. I'm going to read a little bit of this from verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 2. Okay? But brothers... Uh, 17? Yes. But brother, chapter, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. So they left Thessalonica, they went to Berea, then Athens, Corinth, and we had every intention to come to you. We loved you. There is, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. Interesting. So here they are in God's missionary journey, and Satan successfully stops them. And they tried over and over, but they could not get around Satan's impasse. Is it that Satan is bigger than God? No, it's not. Ah, absolutely not. However, Satan used circumstances, people, and their persecutions to keep Paul from going back, to keep Paul from going back. Now, as we move on, watch this. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we glory in in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes, is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. This is a section, the first three chapters, in which Paul, as it says here, Paul's heart for the Thessalonians. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Chapter 3, verse 1. Listen. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, we sent Timothy, who was our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ. Wait a second, I thought Paul was by himself in Athens. But he says while he's in Athens, he sent Timothy. So here's what we realize. Paul, they got kicked out of Thessalonica, they got kicked out of Berea, but he left Paul, Timothy, and Silas there went to Athens, and apparently both of them joined him so that he says, we, Silas and all, Silas and I sent Timothy off. And it's very possible that shortly after he sent Timothy, he sent Silas to maybe Philippi or to Berea. We don't know. But then both of them, while and he does that while he's in Athens, he then by himself goes on to Corinth and both Silas and Timothy join him then. Okay? So Luke does not tell us that Timothy and Silas joined him while he's in Athens because he didn't think it's, it's much of a big deal. They were probably there a very short time and Paul immediately sent them out. But then they both joined them, him in Corinth. Now I'm sharing this with you because we have to be careful when we study scripture uh, that we 
we're fair with the text, okay? We don't assume certain things. And therefore, we should not assume, because reading Acts we might, that Paul was all by himself in Athens the whole time when we find out here he wasn't, okay? Now, that's actually a principle that you're going to discover helpful as you read throughout Scripture, okay? The Bible doesn't say that they did not join. Luke doesn't say they didn't join him in Athens. Paul says he does. But we can never use arguments of silence. We could ask, hey, was Paul and Silas, uh, excuse me, was Timothy and Silas with Paul in Athens? Without reading First Thessalonians, we should answer, we don't know. It seems as if they weren't from reading Acts, but it's fair to say we don't know. Because if we say they absolutely weren't, that's an argument from silence. Do you understand? Because Luke doesn't tell us one way or the other. So that right, an argument from silence is as students of the word, let's be really careful. Arguments from silence are very weak arguments. Okay? And this goes to show that even though Luke is silent on that, they actually did join him. Okay? And so even though that appears to be a discrepancy, it certainly would not be. The sec- second thing is, I, I want let- to, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17. This is concerning the writing of uh, 1 Thessalonians. Just trying to get some chronology there, right, on the first thing, the occasion. And then, right now I want to ask the question, how did he write? How? And we actually discover a pattern that Paul uses... I'm not sure if I've touched on this before, but in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, it says, I, Paul, write this greeting. Now, this greeting is not, most greetings are in the beginning of a letter, right? But Paul, even though he greets them in the beginning, he greets them and he usually gives personal greetings at the very end. And so these personal greetings generally are so-and-so sends greetings to you. Someone from this household church sends greetings and so on. So this is a greeting. It's just at the end. And he says this, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. In Galatians 6.11, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. But in Galatians 6.11... He says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. And he says that in verse 11, but, well, I didn't count the the verses. Um, There are 18 verses. So from from 11 to 18, Paul, for Galatians, Paul picks up the pen from his scribe and he starts writing, but he uses large letters. Okay, he's not talking a large letter like a large epistle. See what large epistles I know. See what large letters, Greek letters I use compared to the scribe that he's using. So Paul, we know number one from 2 Thessalonians 3.17, when Paul is writing a letter, he's dictating it. It's very possible Paul does not have very good eyesight. As we get into Galatians, specifically chapter 4, there may be a hint as far as what happened there from a sickness, but we don't know for sure. And he usually uses a scribe to write his letters. At the end, he takes the pen in hand using large letters. It's like a signature, if you will. And he then finishes the letter 
with closing remarks that are personal, generally personal greetings, in which so he closes out the letter. Okay, I just want to bring that to your attention. Okay, so where and when does Paul pen First Thessalonians? All right, go to uh, Second, or excuse me, First Thessalonians, chapter three, verse sixteen. First Thessalonians. 316, when does Paul actually write it? Now, he's, this is his second missionary journey. I'm sorry? First Thessalonians 316. You're in Second Thessalonians, no? First Thessalonians 3, excuse me, 3, 6. Thank you. First Thessalonians 3, 6. Thank you for that correction. Um, it says here, but Timothy, so Timothy is sent out from Athens. Paul then goes on to Corinth and Timothy joins him. Okay. And that's the occasion of Acts 18.5 in which we see this. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. So when did Paul write 1 Thessalonians? Very shortly after Timothy's arrival. Now here's the thing. In the second missionary journey, when Paul goes to Corinth, Paul stays there for a year and a half. Okay? Paul stays there a year and a half. Now, we know that this is around 51 to 52 AD because he says it ha- he was there during Gallio's proconsulship, and we actually have archaeological evidence of this. And so it's, it's one of those stakes driven in the ground. When Luke is writing Acts, we know that Paul was in Corinth around 51 to 52 AD, and he was the proconsul. Gallio was the proconsul there for one year. So that really narrows it down. And Paul was in Corinth for a year and a half. So he wrote 1 Thessalonians shortly after Timothy's arrival, which was in the beginning of his stay. And we would imagine that, that, that he wrote 1 Thessalonians around 51 maybe 52 at the latest AJ, okay? Um, Acts 18 actually talks about Paul's encounter with Gallio because he's hauled before him and the Jews try to make accusations and it it turns totally on its head. And actually, the synagogue ruler gets beaten. Now, it's interesting. The first synagogue ruler, Crispus, gets saved. He's the synagogue ruler. He gets saved. He's like the senior pastor, if you will, of that Jewish synagogue. He gets saved. We learn that in that chapter. They then get a new synagogue ruler. He brings these accusations against Paul, and the synagogue ruler gets beaten. I believe his name is Sosthenes. The new one? The new one. Now, we read about a Sosthenes in Corinth that is a Christian. It's very possible that this second synagogue ruler got saved as well. And maybe God used this 
beating of Sosthenes to really force him to weigh what Paul was saying. Now, we don't know anything more. It may have, there been, may have been some miracle Sosthenes thought, I can't believe this turned around on me. How could this happen? It's as if God is protecting Paul. I don't know. But it appears that Sosthenes, the second synagogue ruler, gets saved. All right? And that's just to say, you know what? When the enemy comes against you and you just kind of get weary, you don't want to lean back, you kind of get weary of all of these attacks, that's just stuff that happens in life. Know this, that God is able to take those things and turn them around against Satan. And yet we see in Second First Thess- Thessalonians that Satan successfully stopped them, but only because God permitted it. And there are many times in which God says, wait a second, no way, Satan. I'm going to turn this on your head. And God will, God will do that in your life. God will, as we are praying, Paul going, to, I mean, he, he, he's, it's a new ministry and uh, in Corinth and he's hauled before the rulers and it could be that he's going to get kicked out of Corinth. But God had just told him, I have people in this place. Don't worry, stay here. What happens? He gets hauled before Gallio, but God clears Paul. Okay. God can do this for us. God can work immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. God can do miracles. When our backs up are, are up against the wall and we cry out to him, it is amazing what God will do. Well, the second thing I want us to look at, we've looked at it just a little bit, as we see up here on the whiteboard, Paul's heart for the Thessalonians. Um, Acts 17, I mentioned, says that Paul was there for three Sabbaths. Now, we've got to be careful. We don't want to assume that there are three consecutive Sabbaths because on that last Sabbath, there's an uprising. They get kicked out of Thessalonica, and it seems like, wow, what a short-lived missionary uh, stop to evangelize, three weeks or less. But as we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, We discover in verse 9, it says, For they themselves, those in Achaia and Macedonia, they tell us, excuse me, uh, where am I here? For Verse 9, For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols. Jews? Attending synagogue? Worshiping idols? No. No. the majority of the church in Thessalonica is actually Gentile. How did that happen? This is not too long after leaving Thessalonica that he writes this letter. What has apparently happened is we mustn't understand these three Sabbaths that he was preaching as three consecutive Sabbaths, but rather three Sabbaths that Paul was perhaps invited to speak over several months. Other than that, He was preaching the gospel out in the streets. And then eventually the Jews got fed up with this because they're jealous. And then on the third Sabbath, there's an uprising. They they get some bad guys and they start a a, a riot. And uh, so anyway, um, 
So what we discover here is that he was probably there more than likely for several weeks, if not months, and the three Sabbaths should not be understood to be three consecutive Sabbaths, okay? Now, second thing I want to see concerning Paul's heart for the Thessalonians, turn to verse 7. I'll start with verse 6 and read through verse 8. But it says, as apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. Actually, that Greek word there is better translated nurse or even more specifically nursing mother. Okay. And that's probably how it's being used here. Because as a nurse, as a nurse cares for her own children, no, more a nursing mother caring for her children, okay? Because this is not the Greek word for mother. So I want us to see two metaphors here. Number one, Paul in his ministry to the Thessalonians says, we were like a nursing mother to you. A nursing mother constantly dotes on his infant. Moms, I mean, as a dad, I did this. Moms do it like 10 times more. When you when your newborn is laid down for a nap, how many times do you check your newborn? You want to make sure that his head's tilted just right and that he doesn't suffocate, that he doesn't pull the blanket over him or anything like this. You know, you you check him, you make sure. I remember so many times I would see my kids just laying there so still and I would wait for their chest to rise. Okay, they're breathing. <laughs> you know, I'm, you, there's just this, this doting over this newborn and these, Thessalon- these Thessalonians were newborns in Christ, newborns. And so Paul, Silas, Timothy were like a nursing mother or like nursing mothers to them. And then so concerned are they that they actually send Timothy back very shortly after. I'm not sure of any other uh, situation this happened, okay? It's possible that it did. Because again, Luke just may not have told us, or Paul in any of his letters, but this, this seems unusual. There is something that is, that the enemy is trying to do to undermine Paul's ministry in Thessalonica that maybe we just don't grasp. He is, Satan stopped them from going back. Um, we're going to read some other passages, but there's just this incredible, concern that he has for them that he doesn't seem to have as it as intensely with the other people so um, there's this suffering and he actually uses the term severe suffering that the christians are undergoing okay now so he is this uh, paul is we were like a nursing mother to you and he says in the next verse and, and i love this verse he says we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you would become so dear to us. And then he says, Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. They worked night and day. They wearied themselves because Paul's apostolic entourage loved them so much. Now, Paul uses we quite a bit in this letter, and he starts it off by saying, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church in the Thessalonians, to the, to the church of the Thessalonians. 
And so these are the three, though Paul is the one giving, writing, or dictating the letter to a scribe. Um, possible that Silas is writing it. We, we don't know, but he has a scribe. And so he says, this is, the, we, apostles, Silas, Timothy, Paul, apostles, all three of them, apostles, ministering like a nursing mother, loving them so much we shared not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. And I'm just going to encourage you, when you are ministering to people, when you are um, trying to disciple others, this is an excellent picture, illustration, I want you to have in your mind as a nursing mother. And, and extrapolate on that and, and dig into it. What, does, what is that like? But doting on the one that you're discipling, sharing not only the gospel of God, but your life as well with that person. Very important. Now he uses another metaphor. It's a father metaphor. Skip on down to verse uh, 11. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. So he's already talked now about the nursing mother. This is what we were like to you. Now he says we were also like... A father, and how a father deals with his children. And here's what he means by as a father. Number one, um, encouraging. That's a Greek word, parakaleo, that means to come alongside, generally meaning to comfort, but also meaning to encourage, to infuse life into them. As you just imagine someone coming along your side and putting their arm around you to just have a, a personal talk, you know, has your dad ever come alongside you and put his arm around your shoulder and just said, son, I want you to know how proud of you I am, how much I love you. Um, and, and this is what he is talking about, coming along their side. Okay. It's number two, comforting. And number three, urging. And that word urging is a strong word. So we weren't just all about babying and encouraging, man, I love you. But we also comforted you, maybe shed some tears with them. But then he comes along with this word urging. Just like fathers, they say, you know what? We're just going to cut to the chase. You gave me your word, son, and you broke it. Okay? And so I need to be firm with you right now. There's consequences to this. Paul urges them, you know what? You have made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. The old is in the past. You have become a new creation, and I'm going to urge you, live like that new creation. Stop living the old life. You have turned your back on it. I can just imagine Paul, like a father, urging them, knock it off. You have a new life. Christ rescued you. Don't be like that um, pig, the, the dog that goes back to his vomit. Or the sow that had washed who were wallowing in the mire. Don't do that. And so he, you just get this strong sense. So the father metaphor is not just about love. It's about being gracious and gentle, but about being very firm as well. And again, when you're discipling somebody, when you're caring for somebody, I'm going to encourage you, not just the nursing mother metaphor, but the father metaphor. Don't be afraid to challenge them. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Okay? So, when you care for them in the context of relationships, they will trust you 
And you're going to have to just weigh this because there are times in which you need to step in and give a firm challenge to them. Don't do that right off the bat. First week, dude, you didn't do your homework? What? You were supposed to read the New Testament by today. You mean you didn't read the entire New Testament? That's what I told you last week. Okay, obviously I'm being facetious. But we want to be really careful. All right. In fact, I would never tell someone to, to do that. But you, you get the idea. Don't, don't bring rebukes and correction and, and urgings right off the bat. Build that relationship. Let them know that you love them and really care about them. And then as, as you win their affections, they're going to understand when you give that firm word, you're doing it out of love. Not just because, well, Pastor Mike got angry with me. No. I know I got to urge you because if I don't do it, you're going to go right back in. When we're done here, within a week, you're going to go right back into it. And I am not going to let you jump off that cliff. I've got to urge you. Okay? Father metaphor. All right. I want to look at some instructions here. Num- this is the last thing. So, oh, wait a second. Um, yes. Oh, oh, okay. One other thing I wanted to point out to you. In chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, I wanted you to, to see this. Um, this is with uh, no, section number 2, his heart for them. In fact, he says, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out, about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. Do you you hear that sense of urgency from Paul's heart in which he realizes something's going on. Something is rotten in Denmark. We need to find out what's going on here. Satan has been keeping them uh, from going to them. He just senses we've got to do something. We've got to do. So they sent Timothy. See how they're doing. And he was put to ease. Timothy came back with a good report. Thank you, Lord. Satan kept us from coming. Um, but God, you are sovereign. The good work you completed in them, you will carry it on to completion. Uh, so I'm not saying that that's a verse you should quote and not care for people. All right. Not give them phone calls. Hey, how you doing? Not visit with them or anything. But rather, there are times in which God just says, you know what? Satan's doing double overtime right now keeping you from being able to see how someone's doing. I need you to know, I got this. Okay? And so that's basically what's happened here. So do you see Paul's heart here? It's this intense longing. And that lasts for three chapters. First Thessalonians is five chapters. The first three chapters, Paul is simply expressing his heart to them, his concern for them, this intense desire to come to him, but couldn't. And finally they send Timothy, and Timothy comes back. Thank you, Lord. And you get this at the end of the ch- this chapter, this re- sense of rejoicing that they're doing so well. But now he gets it. The last two chapters are instructions. So first three, his heart for them. The last two chapters are instructions. I want, to, I want you to see something here in verse one and two, where he says, finally, brothers, Never believe a pastor when he says finally. Okay, just don't. Um, finally, brothers, we instructed you, or he's ta- he just has two things to share with them. Number one, my heart, and then finally, the last thing are some two, two chapters of instructions. <laughs> okay. So finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live 
in order to please God, as in fact you are living, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Okay, so that's how he begins this instruction time. And he gets into three things. Number one, he speaks about purity, and I want us to see something in that. Number two, he speaks about brotherly love. And number three, um, we get into some uh, various challenges that we'll touch on. And then fourth, we get into the day of the Lord. And then chapter five, which we are probably not going to get to today, because here's what you're going to realize if you haven't realized it already. In Paul's two chapters of instruction, he touches on the day of the Lord and then a few other various instructions. And he repeats that same content in Second Thessalonians. He takes a chapter and a half to deal with the day of the Lord, and then a chapter and a half to do with various instructions that mirror these final instructions that he gives them in the beginning of chapter four and the end of chapter five. Okay? So we're going to look at the end of chapter five when we get to Second Thessalonians next week. Second Thessalonians is only three chapters. This is five. So that works out fine with me. Um, so I want us to see something, though, in this first section, and it's on purity. He tells us in verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Okay, Paul, what do you mean by sanctified? He gives us three ways that he is encouraging them to be sanctified, set apart as God's holy possession, his holy people. Number one, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, this is the Greek word porneo, and it could be translated fornication. That is sexual immorality before marriage. Okay, it's very possible that that is what he is getting at here. Because the second one has a Greek phrase that is difficult at best to translate. And it's this phrase that each of you, this is the second challenge, that each of you should learn to control his own body. Literally, it's that each of you should learn how to acquire a vessel for himself. That each of you... Now, the word possess is not a real good translation of the Greek because it doesn't mean to possess something. It means to acquire or obtain it, okay, or purchase it. It doesn't necessarily mean to have it or possess it. Now, the reason why they translate it possess is because this word for um, body is a Greek word for vessel. Now, Peter uses this when referring to a wife as the weaker vessel, okay? Um, Paul uses it when he says that some vessels are created for noble purposes and some for ignoble purposes, not very noble purposes, okay? Um, that So this word vessel can be a literal vessel, um, but it can also mean a person. It can also mean a wife. So the NAV chooses the option to ref to have it refer to one's own body, his own. Okay, Con the word control is not in the Greek, so it is the word 
to, though it's, they translate the word possess, instead of possess, how would they say it then? Possess his own body. They would, they can, they translate it control his own body. Control your sexual urges. I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I do think that he is talking about acquiring a wife. That we need to do so with honor and with holiness. So how do you do it? In a way that is holy and honorable. Or in holiness and in honor. Treat that girl that you're thinking, maybe she's my wife. As you are looking to acquire a wife, treat that girl with honor and in holiness. Then the third thing, see how this flows now. The third thing, we come across something somewhat unusual. He says, um, skipping down to verse 6, And in this matter, no one should wrong... Let me just make sure. And in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Now, if we're to understand that second challenge to mean control his own body, and in this matter, don't wrong your brother. See, he's not saying women don't do this to your brother, but he's actually talking to the men here, brothers, and he tells them not to wrong or defraud your brother. Now, see, that second one just doesn't make sense because, remember, he introduces this third one within this matter that I just talked about, sexual purity, acquiring a wife. In this matter, don't defraud, cheat, take advantage of your brother. So then the question is, let me just, you're, you're, you're pursuing a woman, seeking to acquire a wife. The goal is, I'm, I, I want to see if we're compatible for marriage. And you relate with her in a certain way. And Paul says, make sure in how you relate with her, you don't cheat your brother. Doesn't that just sound really odd? But think about this. Number one. Let's look at this concept of wrong his brother or take advantage of him. There's two Greek words here, okay? And let me get my bearings here. I lost my place. Here we go. Um, the first one means overstep or trespass. Don't overstep or trespass your brother. Don't step in a place that belongs to him. That's what trespassing is, right? Hey, that belongs to your brother. Don't overstep and or trespass your brother. And it also said, now the NIV, or yeah, it's, it's the next word is, NIV says, and don't take advantage of him. And the Greek word there actually means overreach in order to take what does not belong to oneself. Let me suggest something to you. It's possible that this is referring to adultery. But if we are talking about acquiring a wife, the very common mistake that most guys make is, 
to assume that this woman will one day be my wife. That you do not know for sure until you're married. Okay? So whose brother, who is this brother that you could be trespassing with? Her future husband. Honor this woman. Don't take advantage of her. Treat her honorably. Treat her purely. Because she is not your wife, and she may very well be another man's wife. So I'm going to encourage you, it is, it, young guys, as you are seeking to one day acquire a wife, to get married, and you are relating to this girl, how are you going to do it? Keep this in mind. In the way you treat her, would you treat her the way you are if she ended up becoming your best, your best friend's wife? Would you still treat her that way? If this aspiration towards marriage doesn't go there, she is more than likely going to be someone else's wife. What if she becomes your best friend's wife? Does that not cast that in a different light and how you would treat her? But typically in our day, we treat girls in a way, even in the church, that we just basically, you know what? We'll just do everything but have sex together. Okay? That is sexual intercourse. There, they, there will be foreplay. There will be everything but that. And let me ask you, is that what you would want for your wife to be? Is, would you want a guy treating a girl that you're, that girl that you're going to marry that way? No. There is something special when you reserve certain things for marriage, okay? And by the way, it's called foreplay for a reason, okay? In the context of sexual relations, okay? If you don't know what I mean by foreplay, then ask your mom when you get home. The, the idea is that in America especially, we take, we push this concept of, 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 relating with a girl sexually so far we hold hands we kiss and we do a lot of other things but we don't have sex with them we don't have sexual intercourse with them that is and i'm going to tell you if that's how you treat girls guys you are defrauding her future husband you are overstepping your bounds and you are taking what does not belong to you treat her honorably as if maybe one day you guys don't get married and she marries your best friend. And you stay friends. All right. So I did say that he's... Any questions on that, by the way, before I move on? Um, we're going to spend the next 40 minutes talking about the day of the Lord. And specifically, we're going to want to ask the rapture question. Are you guys familiar with the rapture? Um, those who believe in the rapture, uh, I am specifically referring to that event that they say takes place seven years before the second coming of Christ and the end of the age. Seven years before that. There are some that believe in a rapture, but it hap they, they make it 
the very same thing or, or a different name for the second coming of Christ. To avoid confusion, I never refer to the rapture that way. Because the way, when the rapture comes up, people don't like saying, yeah, pre-trib rapture. No, okay. Well, I'm a post-trib rapture. Well, the word rapture is not even found in the Greek text. It comes from the Latin, from this passage that we're going to look at, by the way. It's just that I, I want to avoid confusion. So when I refer to the rapture, I am simply referring to a pre-tribulation rapture. When I'm referring to a post-tribulation rapture, they, they would say that the great tribulation is seven years. The, some of the pre-tribulation raptures, people believe it happens before the tribulation, that Christ comes, and then he comes a second time all the way to the earth. Others believe in a post-tribulation rapture, and it's the very same thing as the second coming. I'm going to talk about a, a Greek word that is commonly used to refer to the second coming. So I'm going to refer to the second coming of Christ. And when I refer to the rapture, I will always be meaning a pre-tribulation rapture. That is a rapture that happens seven years prior to the second coming of Christ. The question then is, is the rapture biblical? So we're, I'm going to just have you stand up and kind of stretch out a bit and um, shake off the sleepies. And then in just a minute, we're going to go ahead and, and continue on. And Mickey, Lana brought some popcorn. Anyone who wants some, grab a plate, grab some popcorn. While you're stretching, are there any questions at this point? I hope I didn't go through that um, prior section about purity too quickly. Um, I know for those who have heard that for the first time, that can kind of be a little numbing with Greek words and, and what they mean and, and so on. But... Uh, just if you're interested, just read through that section again and ask how on earth can I defraud, cheat, overstep my bounds with my brother? Because it doesn't say your sister, but your brother. All right. Couldn't that be like going the other way, though? How do you mean going the other way? Women? It, when he says your brother, though, um, if he was being very specific about sexual immorality, right? Um, I would say that would that could be possible in the context of sexual immorality. I think he would want to be really specific. Don't defraud your sister since he is speaking to the brothers at this point and controlling your, if he means controlling your body um, and sexual urges, um, it just seems odd for him to say, uh, don't defraud your brother. He, he would probably want to say, don't defraud others. Um, because that could get, it could get very confusing. 
Plus, then you have those two Greek words to overstep your bounds. Um, and so, but that is a, that is a good point. I'm not going to exclude that as a possibility. That the term brother there could be very generic, just like men. Um, anthropos can mean both men and women. Um, so, all right. Let's go ahead and ask that question about the rapture. Is the rapture biblical? Let me read that section of scripture to you. And it starts, I'm going to start with verse 13 and read through chapter 5, verse 3. Okay? Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. And in the Latin Vulgate, Jerome used this word for rapture, very similar to our English word. We actually get that word rapture from the word he uses here. Um, Those who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So here's basically the order of events. And he is sharing this because he does not want people to grieve like the pagans do, who have no hope. We have a hope. There was some confusion, though, if those who had fallen asleep would one day be resurrected. And he answers that question, absolutely. So he says, God is going to send Jesus with all of those who had died at that point. When you die, your body goes into the ground and your spirit ascends to be with the Lord. So those who are coming with him are saints. They've they've died and they are bodiless. It's just their spirit. Okay. Now, whatever that looks like, but it is just their spirit. Their body is decayed in the ground. Jesus comes back with all of this, with all of the saints who have died at that point. And when he steps out of heaven, there is a loud command. There is the voice of the archangel and there is the trumpet call of God. Those three things. Then those who are dead in the ground, their bodies will rise and be joined with their spirits. And they will, that is the resurrected body. So this is the resurrection that Paul is talking about. You will be resurrected when Christ, as soon as Christ comes back. He's not even going to touch down on earth because it says we're going to meet him in the air. As soon as you hear that trumpet call, boom, resurrected, new bodies, 
that cannot die, very different than our own, but I'm sure that you will look very much like yourself. Um, people will be able to recognize you. You'll meet Jesus in the air. And then, as soon as they're resurrected, those of us who are alive and in our physical bodies, so it's body and spirit, our bodies will be resurrected. We will receive a new body. We're not going to die and then be raised, but we will, our, our bodies will be totally transformed and we too will ascend and be with Jesus and meet him in the air. Now, here is the confusion and the reason why people postulate a rapture. You go, you meet with the Lord in the air, and so you will be with him forever. And there is an underlying assumption that Jesus does not come all the way to the earth, but he comes only to the atmosphere, resurrects the dead, those who are living, who are in Christ only, the unbelievers are left in the ground who are dead, or if they're alive, they're left on the earth. And then chapter 5 says they're destroyed on the earth. But the assumption is Jesus comes back, we meet him in the air, and then he takes us home. And so people say that this is a rapture, and they usually describe it as a secret rapture. Nobody sees it. It happens immediately, like a thief in the night. It happens in a way that um, no, no eyes will see him. You may have seen the movies Left Behind, and then suddenly cars crash, and people wake up, well, where's my wife? And we're going we're gonna to need to explore this. Is this really what Scripture teaches is going to happen in the last days. Okay. But that is an assumption that Jesus only comes to the atmosphere and then leaves and goes to, goes to heaven. That's an argument from silence because it doesn't say whether he comes to earth or not in this passage. According to other passages, like Revelation 19, he does come all the way to the earth, defeats the Antichrist, the beast, the the man of lawlessness that we're going to look at next week, with the breath of his mouth, with truth, the sword of the spirit, and he slays him, and then he and the false prophet are cast into hell. All others are judged. Now, we the rapture then is proposed because of this assumption that Jesus does not come all the way to the earth, and his second coming he will. So they say, see, there's a difference. He doesn't come to earth. But it just, it doesn't say one way or the other, whether he does or not. And so we will be with him forever doesn't mean that he suddenly goes into heaven. Okay? Another reason why people propose the rapture is because there's a lot of signs and wonders that are fulfilled before Christ comes back. But there's constantly this word, watch, because you don't know when he's coming. There's a sense of suddenness and unexpectedness. But if all of these signs are fulfilled, boom, especially when you get to Revelation, depending on how you interpret Revelation, all of these things happen. It's like, duh, of course Christ is coming back really soon. And it's not sudden and it's not expected. And, and rather, it is expected. And so to, to keep this sense of suddenness and unexpectedness 
they say, well, Jesus is going to come back in a rapture seven years before all of these are fulfilled. All of these signs are fulfilled. So it is sudden. It is unexpected, at least by unbelievers. Um, let me get my right place here. Uh, A third reason why they believe in a rapture is because during what they call the Great Tribulation, I personally believe that the Great Tribulation is not seven years long, okay? Revelation 7, it talks about the Great Tribulation. It never says it's seven years long. That's from people piecing things together to come up with seven years, two, three, and two groups of three and a half years. And, and I, I disagree with that numbering and such, okay? But that's not the subject for tonight. So all during those seven years, horrible things apparently are going to happen during this great tribulation. And so God wants to rescue his church, so he snatches them out of the earth before the tribulation happens. And there is no sense of that, by the way, in Revelation at all. There's one passage, if we have time, we'll look at it, but it is given to the Philadelphians and it is not given to people, the church, at the very end of the age. There's no inclination towards that at all. And so in Revelation, what you have is that those who were martyred during the Great Tribulation, John sees them gathered, white clothes, worshiping God. And because he asks, who are these? And he says, they came from the Great Tribulation. Okay. Now, I assure you that there will be many martyrs during the Great Tribulation. However we view the Great Tribulation, many, many martyrs, not just 144,000 Jews that get saved during this Tribulation time, okay? Many. Um, so to, 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 in putting together this, idea of a rapture, they say, well, God rescues the church, snatches them out of the earth. Even though those who come to Christ during that seven years, many of them will die, most of them. Um, regardless, the, the idea is that God takes the vast majority of Christians, takes them home. Well, all of them who are, who are Christians at that time, it's just that after the Antichrist is revealed, some will come to Christ and they will be martyred. Um, I, I just, I don't find that teaching anywhere in the Bible except that one verse, and that's all it is, one verse. And I think if we have time to get to it, you'll recognize, wow, how, how do you, how do you say that this is the end time church? It doesn't say that. Okay. So those are the reasons why they believe in, in a rapture. Um, and here is the, here is one of the main concerns. Two, Number one, we're always wanting truth, right? We always want to understand the Word of God. There are some things, though, in which um, are, are not really a huge deal. They're not hills to die on. The only hill that I choose to die on is the gospel, and I will seek to defend that until I die. If someone chooses to, to understand baptism differently or they understand communion differently, I am not going to die on that hill, Okay. I do value truth, and I would like to dialogue with people, but I'm not going to press the point, okay? The rapture is not a really big deal to me, whether it happens or not, but here is 
my concern. Aside from truth, here is my concern. That those who enter, those who are evangelized could very easily say, you know what? I'm not going to follow Christ. There's too much sacrifice in it. If all of this is true, I'll just wait until after the rapture. Like, duh. I mean, if you're saying it's going to happen in my life lifetime, because almost all of them do, by the way, who hold to the rapture, then I'll just recognize there's like hundreds of millions of people suddenly gone in an instant. Then I'll know that there truly is a God in heaven and that Jesus is his son. He truly died on the cross and rose from the dead and he just came back and I missed it. I'm going to repent right now. But I'll wait until after the rapture because, oh my goodness, you can't miss that. That is my problem. It will allow people to delay because, again, those who believe in this rapture, almost all of them say it's going to happen in your lifetime. It's going to happen in your life. On TV, in the books, and how they interpret Revelation, it's a super big thing. But all this teaching of the rapture, that's not going to get people saved. The second coming will... Because the second coming says, doors closed, no more opportunity, sorry, that's it. There's no second chance. You either chose to follow me or you didn't. When when you're in hell, there's no second chance there. Before the judgment, no second chance because it's happening right now. And you're found guilty. And you refuse to follow me. And I had signs in all of my creation that pointed to me. And you refused to follow those breadcrumbs to me. You refused to look into the word. Your friend that shared the gospel with you, you said, no, 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 no. I want my sin. And now it's too late. But you see, when the rapture happens, oh, it's not too late. You got seven more years. That's my problem. So I I do think this is important. I do. But it's not a hill I'm going to die on. Only hill I'm willing to die on is the gospel. Guys. All right. So, but let's look at this. I want to be gracious, but I, this is truth we need to, to, to look into here. I want you to first turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Jesus is referring to the end times, the time in which he's coming back. And he says in Matthew 24... Verse 30, he says, at that time, the sun, excuse me, the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Pause. Question. Is this a secret rapture or is this a really obvious return of the Lord? Real obvious. Okay, so um, it's possible some believe that this is is the rapture, but I think most of them say, no, this truly is the second coming of the Lord. This is not the rapture, okay? This is the second coming of the Lord. Every eye sees him. Why will they mourn? That's it. I'm sorry? Yeah, too late. late. He's coming right now in the sky. You don't have, you're not going to see him and think, Oh, Jesus, please come into my heart. Please. I just repent of my sins. Too late. It's done. And I imagine that, that people may be horrified, but they won't even be able to repent because the Holy Spirit's work will be done. No more conviction of sin. No more calling and drawing to the Son. No man comes to the 
son unless the father draws him. He, does, he draws him by the spirit. No more of that. Done. Their hearts are hardened. They're, they're not going to fall on their knees and say, I accept you now, Jesus. They'll be terrified. They will mourn. They won't repent. Um, it goes on and says, and, not then, but and, he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds. Sounds very much like First Thessalonians 4, doesn't it? Trumpet call, gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Do you see that loud trumpet call? This is Jesus' second coming. It's at the end of the age. It is the last trumpet call. No more trumpet calls after that. Now, it doesn't say last trumpet call, but I want you to know there is a trumpet call here. Scripture, we, we learned in 1 Thessalonians 4 that there's also a trumpet call. It doesn't call it the last trumpet call. It just says there's a trumpet call. So those who believe the rapture say there's going to be a trumpet call at the rapture and there's going to be a trumpet call at the second coming of Christ. Now let's turn to 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15. I'm going to read to you a passage some of you probably have memorized. You have read it so many times. Maybe for others this is new. So regardless, let's listen carefully. And it says in verse 51, listen. I tell you a mystery. Now a mystery is not something that is a secret and nobody knows about. It is something that was veiled in the past and is now revealed. That's what a mystery is, a mysterion, okay? That is something, just like the gospel in Christ, his death on the cross and resurrection, it's in the Old Testament, but it's veiled. You don't see it real easily, but in the New Testament, oh, it's like real obvious. And the apostles and prophets preached it and made it really clear. This is something Paul is now making really clear. In the past, it was veiled. You may not have really understood it too well. I'm going to make it super clear to you now. Let's see how clear he makes it. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. First of all, let's note something here. Who is we. Okay. Does Paul include himself in that? Yeah. Paul includes himself. That's what we means. It means I and y'all together. Or y'all and I, to be more proper in my English. Um, And so it is, Paul is including himself here. And we will all be changed. All believers will be changed. Wait a second. How can, if there is a rapture, this can't be the second coming of Christ because only some will be changed. All the others were changed at the rapture. So for this reason, do you follow what I just said there? Okay. So those who believe in a rapture say this has to be the rapture. It has to be. No question. If it's not the rapture, then there's no rapture. And they would agree with this. Paul is being raised. All others will be raised. This has got to be the rapture. But what trumpet blast is this? Is it the first? The second? 
Look in your text there. What trumpet blast is sounded? At the what trumpet? Say it real loud. Last. Last. Wait a second. We just read Matthew 24 that when Christ comes back and every eye sees him, and that's his second coming and not the rapture, he's going to give a trumpet call. So how can the rapture be the last trumpet? Do you see? It, it can't be. Paul says that this is the last trumpet call, but the truth is, if it's the rapture, he made a mistake and he meant to say the second to the last trumpet call. I'm being facetious. Of course he doesn't say that. He didn't make a mistake here. This is the last trumpet call, and the reason for that is because this is the second coming of Christ, and there is no rapture. Okay? Paul and y'all, we will all be changed at the second coming of Christ and not at a rapture. Okay? Christ will come at the end of the age, and we are all going to be changed. And it's at that point that death will be swallowed up in victory. See, if this is the rapture, then no, no, in seven years, death will be swallowed up in victory when Christ comes back because there's still going to be a lot of dying right now. But no, when Christ comes back, that's it. Death and Hades will be cast into hell. There will be no more death. There will be no more sin at, or, and the power of sin, at least among in heaven. And that's, he's, he's talking about those in the kingdom of God here. So this has to be the second coming of Christ. And Paul says that that's when he is going to be raised. All right. Um, I want you to turn to Matthew 24 again. Okay, we're really going back and forth here. And I want us to look at a passage that is generally understood to speak about the rapture. And I would like someone to read verses 36 to 41. Can someone do that? Verses 36 to 41. No, no. Real loud. Thank you. No one knows. What's what verse? 41? Yes. Thank you. Okay. No one knows about the day or hour, neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. But in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage of the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will. You may will be greedy with a handmail, and will be taken, and the other left. Now, according to those who hold to the rapture, um, those who are taken are those who are raptured. They're the Christians. If you remember the Left Behind movie, um, he could have said two people will be driving. One will be taken, the other left. Let's just hope it's not the driver. All right? And the question, though, and they use this passage to say this, but I need to ask us the question, who are those who are to be taken? 
Look at the example that's given to us in the flood. Who are those? Look at the, 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 those verses that talk about the flood coming. Who are those who are taken during the flood? Is it Noah, the righteous? Who's taken? Uh, real loud, I'm sorry. Okay, it's everybody outside the ark. They're, how are they taken? Okay, and they are destroyed. So those who are taken, according to this passage, and it's, he, he talks about those during the flood are taken, two men will be, um, I'm sorry, let me look at the text here. Um, in the field, one will be taken. Two will be grinding, one will be taken. Two will be sleeping in bed. It says in another place, one will be taken. Those who are taken are not the saved. They're not raptured into heaven or raptured into the atmosphere to meet Jesus. According to this text, they are taken to be destroyed. It's the exact opposite. The one who's left, that's the one who gets saved. Now, that doesn't mean that those who are left are actually left on the earth. Okay? It's not that they are taken away, removed. They'll be chosen. They'll be selected. That is selected unto destruction. Because actually, the, the one that's left, so to speak, that's the one that's caught up to be with the Lord in the air. And then Jesus comes the rest of the way, and he brings destruction to all of those, and then the judgment. Okay? So who are those that are taken away? The unbeliever, not the believer. Did you have a question? Oh, it was just, I just thought about like the Passover, the ones when the angel of death came, the ones that were taken were, were the ones who Firstborn, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Those who did not have the blood, okay, they were destroyed. So I, I remember when... Uh, Back in the 70s, I was a very strong adherent to this teaching, the rapture. I cut my teeth on it when I first became a Christian. Actually, I cut my teeth on it before I became a Christian. I started reading, uh, Lake, not Lake Great Planters, but uh, There's a New World Coming by Hal Lindsey and another one of his books. Maybe it was Lake Great Planet Earth, but he was an author back in the 70s, really big on end times events. Um, perhaps one of the most well-known traveling, pulled out his prophecy charts, and he kind of got it started where many people would travel from church to church, having conferences about end times, and they have the right way of understanding Revelation, and here's what's going to happen, and you're going to get raptured, so if you're not saved, you better get saved tonight, or you're going to be left behind. Well, actually, it's the believer that's left behind. Anyway, um, this is one of the passages, and there were even songs written in the 70s. Um, I'm not going to sing them for you. I'll be good to you. But there were songs um, written about the rapture. But um, next passage I want us to turn to is Revelation. We're gonna, if we have time, we'll look at the second passage in Revelation. Yeah, we might, we might. This is Revelation chapter 20. This is actually in the context, we're not going to get into this, that, the subject tonight of the millennium. 
is the millennium a literal thousand years? Um, the original, uh, the, the people who adhere to the rapture, and I, I, I might be mistaken, I am not aware of anyone who believes in a rapture and is not a premillennialist. A premillennialist believes that when Christ comes back, that's the end, and then the earth isn't destroyed, it's actually re-inhabited for a thousand years. Christ takes up residence in Jerusalem, and he reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. He was in the abyss. He's now released. And he gathers everyone that opposes God to fight against Jesus and the saints in Jerusalem. Um, fire comes down from heaven and rescues them. And then there is the final judgment, the great white throne judgment. And you can see this in Revelation 20. He talks about the first resurrection and the second. Well, he doesn't talk about the second resurrection. We assume there's a second resurrection. But this is what we need to look at. And I, I want you to put your thinking caps on right now as I read these two verses in Revelation 20. It's verses 4 and 5. Remember that those who die by not getting the mark of the beast, according to this premillennial view, which generally many of them believe in the rapture, so they would be premillennialists. They believe that those who do not receive the mark of the beast during the seven years will be killed. They will be beheaded. If you don't bow down and worship him, you will be beheaded. You will become a martyr. Okay? Um, and so, now listen as I read verses 4 and 5. I saw thrones on which were sealed, excuse me, on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, obviously, during the seven-year tribulation. They missed the rapture. They got, they got saved. They didn't receive the mark. Okay. But who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had, had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This, now, those who were beheaded didn't worship because of their testimony of Jesus, didn't worship the beast or his image, did not receive the mark. They were put to death. They now come to life, and that is called the first resurrection. Now, put this together in your minds. If I believe in a rapture, I have to say, no, no, no. Those who will come to life at this point, at the end of the tribulation, that's the second resurrection. Because the first resurrection happens at the rapture. Okay? So if the rapture is true, that's the first resurrection. Then there's seven years in which people come to Christ and they're killed because of the beast. And then they come to life. And John tells us, wait a second, that's the first resurrection. But if I hold to a rapture, I have to say, no, 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 wait a second. That's got to be the second resurrection because the first resurrection took place at the rapture. 
And this clearly refers to those coming to life who were beheaded, killed, because they did not receive the mark during the Great Tribulation. If I hold to the rapture, I have to call that the second resurrection because the rapture is the first resurrection. But if there's no rapture, this is the first resurrection. Okay? Now, do you see that? Any questions about that? It is a bit confusing. I, I follow you, but I don't follow the whole. Okay. Yeah, it's very confusing, and I'm wondering what do you what? So you hold to the rapture or not? I, I do not. My whole purpose right now is to show you that there is no rapture. There's only one return of Christ. That's called in Greek. It's called the parousia. Okay, his appearing or his coming. And if you read any books by theologians or anything like that, they're going to use the term parousia. It's, it's this word right here. Parousia. Excuse me, that's an S. That is the second coming. I believe, and those who believe in the rapture, believe in the second coming of Christ. I just don't believe in a rapture that happens seven years before the return of Christ. So those who believe in a rapture, okay, it happens right there. Seven years go by. We have the man of lawlessness that's going to be revealed at this point. And then for seven years, eventually he will rule the world or most of it. Um, you will have to get a stamp to purchase, to trade, sell. Revelation says you'll have to have a stamp either on your, your arm, your, your hand rather, or your forehead. If you refuse that, you will not be able to buy or sell anything. And if you refuse to worship him or his image, you will be beheaded. This is not what you believe? No, this is what Revelation teaches. This is the seven years, okay? Now, I'm not going to get into what I believe about that because this, I'm speaking from a premillennial perspective right now. Everything is very literal. The, these seven, I don't believe that there's a seven year. I do believe in a great tribulation. I just don't believe it's seven years. I believe the new, the numbers given in Revelation are much more symbolic. And even someone who believes in a seven year tribulation has to at some point say, no, these numbers are symbolic. They're not literal. And, and we could, Revelation 20 would, uh, excuse me, Revelation 12, okay, would be an example of that. But it used three and a half years. The Jews are going to be hidden for three and a half years. No, that three and a half years is the church age, okay? It's not literal three and a half years. But I don't, I don't want to get into that. And so seven years actually comes from Daniel 9. Um, but right here, after the seven years, this is the parousia. This is Christ's second coming, his appearing, okay? The question then is, is the rapture something Scripture teaches? 1 Thessalonians 4 is the main text that those who believe in a rapture use, and I'm saying that even that text can't be true, because in 1 Thessalonians, well, I didn't even mention this, and I'll I'll get to it in a second, Um, but... I am saying that the rapture can't be true for those scripture verses that I gave you. All right? 
and I don't want to rehash all of that I just mentioned, but I don't believe that. The last thing now that I'm coming to is in Revelation, in which it says all the believers during this time period, they don't receive the mark, they don't worship him, they're going to die, but then they're going to come to life right here. And what is this called? This is when this happens. This is called the first resurrection. That's what John calls it. They come to life. This is the first resurrection. Well, then what, what happens right here? Those who are caught up to be with the Lord, their bodies are in the grave and they're raised up. That is the resurrection. It has to be. Their, their bodies have been decayed, dust blown in the wind. And suddenly they come out of their graves to meet Jesus in the air and they're joined with their spirits and they are resurrected. That they're in their resurrection. That right there would have to be the first resurrection. And if the rapture were true, I'm saying this would have to be the first resurrection and this would have to be the second resurrection. If I believed in the rapture, I don't. And I'm saying Revelation 20 says this is the first resurrection. That is a proof to me that there cannot be a rapture, because if there were, that would be the first resurrection. And John just told me, no, it's not. This is the first resurrection. The second resurrection would happen, according to this view, 1,000 years later, at the end of the millennium. Okay? But it doesn't get into that. I'm not getting into that. But this is called the first. If there's a first resurrection, there's got to be at least a, a second resurrection, right? Okay, but I'm not getting into that. I'm just saying if this is the first resurrection, there can be no rapture because this should be the first resurrection. Okay? What do you believe the first resurrection is? That would really get into my millennial view and I really don't have time to, to get into it. We actually spent four hour and a half classes talking about the millennium during theology class. Now, next week, we're going to, and we did talk about some of this um, during those four classes. And then we also talked about what we're going to get into concerning the man of lawlessness and such and what the day of the Lord is. We're going to get into that next week. Um, so that is a really good question. What do I believe is the first resurrection? But I would need a minimum of half an hour just to talk about it. Okay. Because if I say anything, it's going to sound confusing. Okay. Do you have a? Did you have you written all this down in a, like a book or anything? No, 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 no. It, but these the 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 theology classes were taped, so you can always go online on the landing page of the, our website. Click on sermons, and there's a drop down menu. Select theology class. And then scroll, well, you don't have to scroll through because it's, it's ordered from, I think there's 40 classes, 40, and it orders all the way down to one. So you have to go through several pages just to get to the first class. So the last class is on that first page. And you'll see it. It says Millennium Part 4, Millennium Part 3, Part 2, Part 1. And you can, don't listen to in that order. Start with Part 1, of course. But just go through them and you can listen to that. And, and I talk about the very, the three main views of premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And premillennialism is generally divided between those who believe in the rapture and those who don't. 
Okay. Um, I do want to bring to your attention in First Thessalonians, where he says, "But you, brothers, this is in chapter five, verse four, and he says right after this talk about the day of the Lord. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief." Um, this destruction that will come on them suddenly is the second coming. It can't be at the rapture, okay? This day of the Lord then could not surprise them because they won't be there. They'll be raptured. Why do you have to be surprised at the destruction that's going to happen here if you're here? You've already ascended to be with the Lord. Why would he even need to tell them you you shouldn't be surprised? That's that's a non-issue. No, the reason why you don't need to be surprised is because I'm telling you ahead of time. This is what's going to happen. Okay? Not sure if you you got that or not, but um, even in context, Paul challenges us. Paul is clear that this could not be the rapture. All right? Um, I want to close with uh, just a a challenge to us um, concerning the day of the Lord. It says that we live in the light so that we don't need to act like those who live in the darkness. Um, that one day we will live with the Lord forever. And he says, encourage one another with these words. So here's my challenge to you. Let's encourage one another about this, about the coming of the Lord. The the focus many times is the great tribulation and all the bad things that are going to happen. Are we going to go through it or not? You know what? We are to encourage one another. That instill fear. Christ is coming back, gang. And when he comes back and our bodies are resurrected, if we died at that time, we're going to be with him forever. And the glory of heaven is going to be absolutely awesome. Go to theology class and and, and there's some teachings on heaven and really getting into that subject. It is something that I look forward to. I will not be a little cherub playing a harp on a cloud. Okay, that ain't going to happen. I'm not going to approach the pearly gates of heaven on clouds. That concept of heaven on clouds is nowhere found in scripture. Jesus comes on a cloud, but that's all there is about clouds, gang. This is in a place that is absolutely gorgeous and amazing. And the new heavens and the new earth that God recreates, that is going to be like parad- this, the way God originally created the earth. It will be paradise, but no possibility of sin, no possibility of suffering, no possibility of a bad day. That will not be in your vocabulary. How was your day today? Oh my goodness, I had such a bad... Never, every day, will be an amazing day. Every day, you will be interacting interacting with people from different cultures and eating different foods and learning different styles of music and seeing different artwork. And you have an eternity to learn to grow in all of these things. And we're going to, okay? 
God created us in his image. He's a creative God. For all eternity, we will be creative. Playing a harp on a cloud is creative for the rest of eternity, not on your life. Man, I'm going to be exploring the earth, and should God choose to allow us, the universe. I mean, he created the stars for a reason, not just to look at and say, wow, they look pretty neat. But the honest truth is that little white dot up there, that's an entire galaxy. Why did God need to create an entire galaxy to make it look like a point of light in the sky if there's no possibility for me to explore that, I believe that we're going to be exploring this. I'm not getting off into some really weird ideas, gang. I really don't think so. God create, recreates the a new heaven and a new earth for us to enjoy him in forever. Forever and ever and ever. And we're going to, and, and then of course you get into this concept of worship and there's not going to be marriage. There's just going to be this intimacy with Jesus that's better than marriage, believe it or not. The intimacy that we can experience, can experience in marriage, should experience in marriage. Um, we're going to have that even more so with Christ. That feeling, that warm feeling that you get, that you get when you just feel that that special someone loves you. Church, we're going to feel that like all the time with Jesus. You know, I mean, this eternity is going to be amazing. So I'm going to encourage you. Christ is coming back. Let's encourage one another with these words, shall we? Encourage each other. What an awesome thing for us to... There is no trial that I could go through that will dampen that hope. Oh, man, I will always look forward to it. I don't care how bad it gets. I'm looking forward to being with Jesus because he's coming back to make all that's wrong right. Well, Father, I thank you for the truths of your word. Just impart life to us, God. Impart hope and encouragement. Father, don't let us uh, get led astray by the things of the darkness. The world speaks from the vantage point of darkness and, and lies from the enemy. God, may we follow you Jesus, may we follow the truth and may we always look forward to that day in which we're with you forever. But in the meantime, God, may we make disciples like mothers and fathers. May we love people and sharing not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well, because eternity is at stake. In Jesus' name, amen.